Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. I'm here with Dr. Brian Goff. Hello, Brian. Hello. Hello, Sheila. And Dr. Jenna Lejeune. Hello, Hi. Jenna. So nice to see you both. Today, our guest, Dan Devaney, born and raised in Portland, Oregon. And after high school, Dan earned a football scholarship to the University of Oregon. Go Ducks. Go Ducks. Hello, Dan. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you. Do you still make the O pretty well with your fingers like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. With the fingers that aren't bent. <laughs> I can do that. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Dan made his way to the counseling field in addiction and substance abuse after his own journey as an addict and alcoholic. And Dan also suffered from depression and suicidal ideation. And thank you in advance, Dan, for sharing this story. I think it's super, super important. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Of course, it's just it's takes practice talking about it. So I'm I'm excited for this morning. Cool. And Taj Dashan. Taj, I don't want to give it the French thing. Uh, <laughs> Taj Dashan. There we go, right? You got it. Taj Dashan. Okay. You got it. Taj Dashan is a former Division One college football player for Stony Brook University. And after playing his last game of football, Taj struggled with depression. He never fully developed a clear vision for his life after the game. And after several years of stumbling around in the dark, Taj began to take his eyes off of himself and focus on serving others, which is what he's doing now, running an intensive program for retired athletes who are struggling to adapt to life after sports. Taj, super cool of you to be with us today. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've become a fan of the show ever since Dan introduced me to Beyond Wells. So all right. I want to share with you all. Spread it around. Oh, great. What area of the country are you living in now, Taj? I am in San Diego. Well, currently I'm in the Inland Empire uh, with my folks right now. But, okay, um, cool. Yeah, so I want to in California. I want to talk with you first, Taj, if you don't mind, just because you're on the phone and Dan is here in studio and we have a little better eye contact with him, just so that we can kind of focus on your story. Um, do you know? Did were you aware that you were getting so dark and so um, and and your emotions were getting so dragged down after you completed your football realm? I think maybe subconsciously. I knew. Um, obviously, it's one of those things where hindsight is twenty twenty, and yeah. as I look back, I'm like, wow, I was pretty messed up. Um, as I was going through it, I didn't have the tools to be able to cope with it, um, and Dan knows this. I'm sure Dan will get into this in his, his story also, but the thing with me was I was just doing the best I could given the tools that I had, meaning I was just trying to... I was I had an extended college, essentially. When I came back home, it was I was doing the same things that I was doing in school, just continuing to go out with the guys, drink. Um, a lot of us were unemployed. So to answer your question, I really had no idea how bad it was because I was living in a fog and I was under the influence of a lot of drugs and alcohol and a lot of uh, binge-watching Netflix at yeah. the time. So. I, w- I want to just bring in Dr. Uh, Lejeune and Dr. Goff right now, because one of the things that I often hear from people is it's only when they're sober and it's only when they recovered that they look back and say, wow, I was in so much trouble. I have no idea how I was stumbling around and people didn't put me on a gurney and put me to the ER. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think people, uh, a lot of people end up drinking or drugs or, or what have you, or even binge watching Netflix uh, as a way to as a way to avoid discomfort, right? That's why people do it is because it works. Yeah. And so it is, it's really only when you stop doing that stuff that you really, you realize like, Oh, reality is relentless. <laughs> it's still here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the things I think I have such respect for people who can make those big changes in their life. 
uh, you know, and stop using or drinking in those ways. Because what's going to happen when you stop is things are going to get a lot worse. Or you're going to, I should say, you're going to feel a lot worse. Right. Um, Because, you know, as Brian said, these ways that we learn how to avoid the painful or scary thoughts or feelings that we have, they work in the short run. They don't work in the long run, but they work in the short run. That's right. I've often said to people, you know, you do it because it works and you come talk to me about it because it doesn't. Right. Uh And both things are true. Both are true. (laughs) <laughs> I want to bring in Dan because, Dan, you you not only went through addiction, uh, I mean, through alcoholism, then you went through addiction, then you got so deep that you were actually suicidal several times. And so there must have been a point where you actually were aware of just how sick you'd become. Yeah. Um, and what caused that is... Um yeah, when we hang up the cleats and then we don't have that connection and we don't have the structure um, and all that disappears and then you go to drugs and alcohol, that's the part where, like, for a long time I didn't know what I was going through. Mm-hmm. But I call it the perfect storm. And, yeah, so that uh, at the very end, Sheila, I really, I was scared, but I also was at that point that it's um, really hard to describe or articulate to people who have not gone through it. Mm-hmm. But that dark spot where um, the insides of your body, you don't have that hope. Um, it just goes away. Mm-hmm. And until I found some people who, I don't know, one minute at a time at, at the beginning, um, that's how it started. It was like I reconnected with some guys who who were willing to just show me love and and. One minute, one day, that's how it started. But, yeah, it's hard to see when you're going through it. But I, I did know at the end, um, you know, it's not normal to go to the ER 19 times in 30 days or be yeah. homeless in Bend, Oregon when it's 5 degrees. or None of it was making sense, but I, I, I didn't know how to get out of it. Right. Yeah. What was your relationship with your family like at that time? Um, literally none because of we... You know, I've talked about we we hide out in our addiction and the guilt and shame is is just too much. Um, you know, people ask me that a lot. Why didn't you call your brother? You know, just that's the last person I was going to call. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that there's something inherent in the way that we really prop up athletes as being the be all end all example of who every young boy wants to be that is problematic in that it's such a false ideology to begin with. And and then when you, you take that uniform off, it's almost as if that entire persona is stripped away. Yeah. No, that's that's it right there. And Taj can, I'm sure, back it up. But once, I didn't know who I was when I, you know, 1986, Corvallis, hung up the cleats. We beat the Beavers, walked out of there with my helmet, a jersey, and a game ball. And... And it took a long time to even know that I was going through that loss of identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Taj, what are you talking to, especially young athletes that are trying to prepare themselves for the steps they'll need to make once they're not working anymore about some of the things that they can do to ensure they have a sense of self, to ensure that they have the steps to be able to continue on after sports? Yeah, it's one of those things, kind of like Dan said, that it's tricky to navigate those waters because 
when you're so immersed in that bubble of sport, especially when you're playing at an elite level, and most of us have been playing since, you know, we were knee high before we before we even hit puberty. I like to say a lot of us were raised by the game. It's one of those things where there's only so much you can say. Unfortunately, there's only so much you can say to an athlete who is still immersed in that world. Because um, I'll give you an example. When I first started, I was, you know, doing a lot of speaking to current athletes. But the thing is, as soon as I'm done speaking, they're going right back into practice, right back into film. You know, their entire focus is on, you know, game time. So a lot of my focus these days is on athletes who are um, already done playing or, you know, they just played their last season. Maybe they're still on campus or they've already graduated and they're out into the real world or maybe someone who had a short professional contract overseas or whatever the case may be, and they're now trying to figure out the next steps about what they're going to do with the rest of their life. Um, but to answer your question, it's one of those things where, and Dan and I experienced this firsthand, it's one of those things where unless someone is literally on your case about it, talking to you, you know, you almost have to have like a one-on-one person um, who can be like, listen, you need to start thinking about what you're going to do. Um, at the same time, it's a catch-22 because you don't know until <laughs> you get out and start experiencing things like, oh, I don't like this or I do want to do this. Um, a lot of athletes may think that they have an idea for what they want to do after they're done. For example, sales. A lot of athletes think, I'm just going to go into sales once I'm done playing because I'm a competitor. And then they find themselves down the road not being motivated to go into these jobs because they have no passion or, or no interest about um, what they're selling. And that's a tough transition to go from, you know, playing in front of a sold-out stadium or arena, and now you're sitting in a cubicle being forced to make 200 dials a day to sell products you don't really care about. So mm. um, I don't know if that really answers your question. Yeah, well, it certainly it, does. I, I really want to bring in Dr. Goff and Dr. Lejeune because I can imagine that the fall for people who have public adulation are paid. You, you're not paid that much at the collegiate level. They should be paid more, if you want my personal opinion. But um, at the at the pro level, uh, in particular, they're paid millions and tens of millions of dollars to perform this thing for people, and then the crowds go away. And as Dan mentioned, out maybe the career is only three to five years at max, mm-hmm. and they might be left also with brain injuries that that contribute to everything else. I can imagine the fall is worse for people who've had that high level of of exposure than for someone who never really depended upon that kind of public adulation. Would you say that's true? Yeah. And I think, I, I think it probably isn't so much just about money, for example. I, I think it's more about, are we putting people in a particular role? Are we seeing them as almost like this caricature mm. of a person? And we certainly do that to high level athletes, whether they're college or pro. And Taj, I think this is something you were speaking to. You said like you didn't even have any sense of what you were interested in because nobody had sort of talked to you about that outside of the game. And I think that that is what happens to folks who get in these roles where we we sort of see you as this, you're, you're sort of this this role, this this caricature of a person, mm-hmm. you're not a real person. And then the way that human beings learn about who we are as individuals is we have people like pay attention to us and ask us human questions like, what is it that you like? What are you interested in? You know, how do you feel? And I don't think we tend to do that with people who are who we want to keep in these very sort of like on a pedestal because uh-huh. 
because once you once you start becoming a real human being, then I have to start paying attention to things like, oh, and you're depressed or and you're being harmed by this and all of these things that kind of ruin the nice little wonderful image we have. Yeah, we certainly don't have the the music to put behind what you just said. Yes. The rah, rah, right. rah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's just way more nuanced. Yeah. You know, I can't imagine what it must be like to perform in front of a stadium of people, whether it's a professional athlete or a musician or something like that. I mean, it, it must be an incredible high. But what Jenna's saying is 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 sort of about identity. And how do I how do I conceive of myself? There is this issue of how do we view these people? They're not a person. They're number eight, or you know, they're the football player, or they're the the basketball player. But it's also the way that we define ourselves. Absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've noted is people will say, "So what do you do?" Uh, which is a verb question, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And how do we answer? We say, <laughs> I am a, that's a noun answer. So mm-hmm. we, you know, what do you do is how do you spend your time or how do you pay the rent or what do you enjoy? Mm-hmm. And then we answer with, this is who I am. I am a psychologist or I am a football player. Mm-hmm. And when those things are taken from you because somebody comes up who's better you know, in the professional worlds, you know, there's there's like an influx of talent all the time. Or you blow out your knee, or in college you graduate, or you get one too many concussions and you're done. Um, or you release an album, and then that was kind of it, and there's no sophomore album to back it up. Mm-hmm. That uh, it feels like, well, who am I now? Because I thought I was a blank. As opposed to, I am this human being, and these are these things that I care about. These are these things that I enjoy. Uh, These are these things that sort of feed me. And I think it's particularly hard for prodigies, whether you're an athlete prodigy or a musical prodigy, who start very, very young with this. Because we learn, you know, uh, Brian and I, in the way that we talk about this, we think of selfing as this verb. It's something that we do. We create this sense of self, right? And we learn how to do that from being a very little kid with people asking us questions and then kind of us figuring it out. But if you're just a little kid who all people are seeing is, oh, you're this amazing athlete or you're this amazing pianist or whatever it is, you don't even learn how to be able to do that so that when you are an adult, of course what you know is, well, I'm a ball player. Mm. And then you're a retired ball player. And then you're, and then, a, and then you're a long player. retired ball yeah. player. Dan, you mentioned that you found um, comfort in other people being able to hear your story and ask who you really were. Was it other football players or was it just other people who have also struggled? Yeah, that was. I was just thinking about that. Um, so I, I had somebody ask me one time, is it easier because you have Walter Bailey in your life? And mm-hmm. he's an ex-football player, played, paid for the Huskies and... He's really been my my peer support guy. Yeah. Um, and it is easier because Walter played college, and that's why Taj and I have connected. Um, we're that's who we are and were, but it's really um, the peer part of anything. I think with like you said, with musicians or actors or anybody that's trying to find themselves again. I think people who have gone through it, like mm-hmm. I have, um, 
can help those people. Mm -hmm. that, it seems that, like it would take less translation or less exactly. explanation. Yeah, it's just like war veterans. They and really, really want to be around other people absolutely. who've experienced the intensity of what exactly. they've experienced. And right? let me just note mm -hmm. that, you know, on the topic of we aren't what we do, uh, I just want to note that a duck and a husky are friends. <laughs> yes, <Yeah, laughs> so. it is good. Everybody loves that That's, evidence, that's evidence right there. Yeah, and I didn't tease them this year about the game. <laughs> okay, what, what I want to know is um, how open are you guys about the dangers of CTE? How familiar are young people now when they're going into the game that they need to be protecting their brains? Uh, and, and what your guess is about how closely aligned this severe depression and CTE is. And, and either of you can start. Dan, do you have thoughts on that or you want to hear Taj first? Uh, go for it, Taj. Taj, you first then. Okay. To be honest with you, I try not to speak too much about CTE only because um, I don't have the science or the data to back it up. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's, I don't, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not even sure if it's um, an officially diagnosable disease at this point right um mm -hmm. and the thing about it is i think this is a conversation that i've had with people who are very deep into that research is that they want to be very careful with saying okay this person has cte or diagnosing someone with cte because it can kind of give someone this hopeless feeling mm. where they you know because it's a degenerative degenerative disease and this person can be like oh i have cte my life is over there's no help for me i might as well you know, just end it sure. um, versus other forms of treatment, which are available, which you guys know all about. I don't have to tell you about that. Yeah. Um, I will say, I think the fact that it's even a topic of discussion, obviously is a good thing. People can say what they want about the game of football being softer now. And, um, you know, I get mad at some of the calls too, especially as a DB, <laughs> you know, I see some of these calls and I'm like, Oh, come on. Just like, let's let them yeah. play, you know, um, at the same time, part of me is glad that, you know, this discussion is happening and people are more aware of it so that they understand the risks associated with the game. And, um, you know, there's more data and more information coming out about it and things are being done to protect the players. So I think yeah, you make great um, points there, Taj. It's, it's the same um, issue that I have around telling somebody at the age of 50 that they have early dementia. Like, yes, there's some things that you can do, but really won't it in many ways take away that person's hope and that person's joy for living. You know, I, I really worry about these diagnosable tools. Like, how do we know how it's going to express? One brain is different than another brain. So we don't know. What are your thoughts, Dan? Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, I just watched the Aaron Hernandez Netflix special. Yeah. Um, you know, all the guys that are dying that have done, you know, they've donated their brain or they've, they've looked at them they all have it um but just because you have cte doesn't mean in you know everybody's going to go out and commit crime and, right and but it's uh it's super real i'm glad we're talking about it it's almost like suicide it's it's really um sometimes tough for people to talk about i i honestly think it's going to be the next next little epidemic among you know us it's just they seem to be finding it in almost everyone that has donated their brain. Yeah. So um, if you could have, uh, you know, the, the kind of work that you and Taj are doing now, especially with athletes who have retired, if you could transfer that to young athletes in terms of 
taking care of their entire bodies, taking care of their minds, taking care of their brains, taking, you know, would a young uh, testosterone-filled athlete even be prepared to take on so much information? Because one of the reasons I think young stars are really good is because they're so compartmentalized. They're so uber-focused on mm. just winning and nothing else. Yeah, um, when I watch football with friends or family, um, you know, there's a lot of people that go, oh, this isn't football anymore, you know, because they won't let them come in and lead first with their helmet. Um, but the young ones, it's, I don't know what I would say if I was a mother. I just know that would be a tough, tough decision to make. But as a, as a man that, that, well, growing up, that sports gave me, you know, so much connection and so much um, meaning in terms of, I loved it. I, I I don't know. I can't imagine not playing sports right. when I was young, especially football. But um, it's a tough one. I I think that everybody's trying to make it safer for the players. Yeah, and that's all we can do. You know, the good news about it's not football anymore is that most of the young kids who want to play football, their their history goes back about five years. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Yeah. You know, so many people are attracted to playing for the Ducks because of their tradition of winning. And I'm thinking, like, really? Tradition of winning? <laughs> right. Are your what ducks, are you talking about? Are your Ducks different than my Ducks? Yeah, I get it. Because my memory goes back further. So if we change the game to make it safer uh, in not too long a time, that won't be the new soft game. That'll just be the game. Yeah. And and I, th I think, Sheila, you know, your point about these are – young kids whose whose brains haven't for, fully developed. developed yeah it's it's not their responsibility to be able to sort of put that mm -hmm. limit on themselves it's our responsibility as a culture and kind of the coaches and parents and all of that stuff to be able to say hey here's a way we we want you to have the experience of sport and dan you keep using this word connection which i think is so mm -hmm. so important like the ability to find a, a tribe to be able to connect with other people is so essential and including essential for brain development. But here's the way we're going to help you do that in a way that isn't super risky. It's exactly the same thing with cars. Driving a car is unbelievably risky. And so we do the sort of thing and we tell our kids, yeah, and you're going to have to wear a seatbelt if we choose to have you drive in a car. We don't say you're not allowed to drive in cars anymore. Right. Yeah. We give them training and yes, help them understand absolutely. all the way along. But we don't put it on them like, gosh, well, you made the choice. Oh, well. You yeah. Know. yeah. I, I want to um, talk with you, Taj and Dan, both about the increase in suicide, especially among males. Um, there's been a 36 increase in just the last 36 percent increase in suicide in just the last 10 years, uh, especially among middle aged men. And I want you because especially you, Dan, you're working in a sober living community. You've seen the people who are going through these really, really deep depressions and despair. What are the factors that are happening now versus, I don't know, when we grew up that are that's causing this, this, this crisis in suicide? Yeah, that's a, I ask myself that a lot. Yeah, I do work. I worked for Cascade Sober Living and I took that job because as Jenna mentioned, connection, that's mm -hmm. connection and community for me are mm -hmm. like number one, number two. And uh, that's that's actually why, you know, Taj and I are on this call together. Um, I don't know why, but I do know that um, 
when I see the population that I work with is drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have mental health. And then we, there's, so for me, I think Taj can relate to, and some of the guys that I work with in the sober living community, there's kind of a perfect storm going on. Mm -hmm. It's all of it, right? Yeah. yeah. So I can't pick one or the other. Uh-huh. Um, and every time I hear someone ask those questions and really, you know, if I wasn't to share publicly what I think, I, I just go back to, God, everybody's on so much medication. Mm -hmm. um, I see guys that are coming off their medication and then they feel, you know, because they think they feel better. And then they go back into, they kind of go to a downside again. You, you're doctors, you could probably describe a little more of that. But the medication, um, but the age group, it's just so hard, I think, when you get to a certain age. For me, I was so tired. Mm. Um, I heard a young man last night, I had to go to a meeting at one of our houses, and one guy asked him why he was going to, what's different this time? He goes, oh, I'm just so, I'm just tired of it. And for me, I was like, oh, you have no idea. You're 20 years old. <laughs> you have no idea what tired means. And oh, I think yeah. when you get to oh. this middle age, it's not, we're not bulletproof like yeah. we used to be. Right. Mm. Taj, do you have other thoughts? Because I completely see a lot of heads nodding here to that. Yeah, I think what Dan said is perfect. And it's interesting that, you know, obviously Dan works with addiction and is now with Hey Catch working with athletes. And I've been working with athletes um, for some time now and I see the parallels with the increase in suicide um, and you know athletes struggling and I think it comes down to isolation like Dan was saying earlier um, if we're talking specifically about men I think of course there's this whole stigma that men uh, especially athletes have to be tough and can't open up and talk about what they're experiencing which obviously I experience which Dan experienced um, a lot of isolation because you feel like no one's going to be able to relate. I don't want to look weak. I don't want to look soft. I have to have this image that I have it all figured out and I'm not hurting. So I'm just going to internalize it, which leads to a lot of suffering, which leads to a lot of people feeling like they're alone, which mm. unfortunately eventually leads to suicide. Yeah. So, I, think, I think the point both of you are making is just so important. And maybe, maybe the more important question or at least the easier question to answer isn't, what's causing the increase in suicide, but rather what can we do in response to the increased rate in suicide? Because if you think about it, like just think about the analogy, what causes a headache? Well, there are a billion different factors that can cause a headache. Mm -hmm. And we know that taking Tylenol can help with a headache. It's not a lack of Tylenol that's causing the headache. It's just Tylenol helps with headaches. It's yeah. sort of simple that way. And you so sure it's if, not a Tylenol yeah. deficiency? <laughs> it's not yeah. a Tylenol deficiency okay, disorder. Right. No. There we go. But if we think about if we think about suicide and and we kind of get into this argument about all these different factors, mm -hmm. of course there are many factors that are involved in the increase in suicide. And yet we know connection and community are two things that will absolutely decrease the rate of yeah, suicide. Yeah, we just right. know that. Yeah. And so if we work on that end of things, then I, I think we're going to get more bang for our for our buck with and it. And can I say yeah. connection and community that's, I'm going to sound old when I say this, but real connection and community? Not yes. The, not, not the social of media. Course. Oh, no. Of yeah. course. We're talking old school. I, would, <laughs> I yeah. would think, yeah, absolutely, face-to-face -face or person-to-person. 
Somebody who sees you, like the real person. The whole you. The whole you. Yep. (laughs) I think that's so important. I also don't want to gloss over that, you know, this increase has occurred at the same time that our dispensation of pharmaceutical drugs has it gone up by a hundred percent and um general physicians give it for everything from cramps to mild depression to and and we don't we still don't have good data to say that any of this helps prevent or stop or alleviate the suffering of the people who are taking it and that's what i think is the most important thing to say about the the plethora of drugs that people are on is there's not great science to say that it's worked Mm -hmm. in fact we have more morbid morbidity we have more people who are very very sick and disabled that are on these drugs than before we started dispensing them that's all that we can say is look at the science look at the data and then try to figure out where we land what jenna's point is but we do know connection works (laughs) we do know that works no that's huge Um, we talked about about that I when, I when I was 10 months sober, I actually was misdiagnosed with ALS in Bend, Oregon. Oh, my gosh. And mm. literally, like, my life, that's how come I, I think really I've been able to, like, really turn the corner is that at the moment when I was going through it, um, you know, I, I couldn't understand it. But it was a gift from God to live one day at a time. Mm. And it's still, it's still the way I do it every day now. But that six months of everybody had a pill for me. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't take them anymore. I don't take anything. Um, but what Jenna was talking about just got me fired up because connection and, like, that's what Taj and I are going to do, and that's what we're going to do with Hey Catch. We're all going to work together to do what, what you just talked about. Right. Old oh, school, like cool. Brian said. We're gonna, people are going to come together, and we're, we're going to talk, and we're going to play catch. Like, literally playing catch can... <laughs> change things like mm, you don't awesome. you don't really it's just a way of like eating when mm-hmm. you're communicating um but that's mm-hmm. when she kind of got into the solution i got see, I super excited it has that, all of that sort of vegas nerve stimulation mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. you're doing one thing again yeah and you again, can you can mess with the guy at the other end your body. Make, yeah, yeah it's beautiful. just really good communication really beautiful mm-hmm. yeah um, Taj, I know that, the, uh, and I wish you could have been here in studio because uh, it felt like we we had our own nice connection today. But do you have anything else that you want to add about how people find you, what they do to come together with uh, either Catch or the organization that you run today for retired athletes? Sure. So you can find me at TajDeshaun.com, um, TajDeshaun on LinkedIn. There's a place actually on my website under get coaching or under contact where you can actually schedule time to speak with me. A lot of times what ends up happening is sometimes people, and you, you all know this, you're professionals, but sometimes people just need someone to talk to Mm. because they feel like they can't open up to their family or whatever. No one understands what they're going through. Who's not a former athlete. Um, Also just really quickly, something I ran into is that even the other former athletes, who I was in communication with people who played at different schools or people from my hometown, we weren't able to help each other because we were all suffering. Mm-hmm. So we all need someone to talk to who's been through it and gone through the other side. Um, a lot of times people don't even necessarily need to join my program in order to get the help. Sometimes they just need to open up about what they're going through. Um, but anyway, you can reach out to me on my website. Um, what else? LinkedIn, obviously Instagram, I'm Taj Deshaun on all those platforms. I would encourage anyone listening, by the way, especially if you're a former athlete 
or just anyone in general to really get on LinkedIn. If you're looking to figure out your next steps, mm. LinkedIn is a, it's a very underrated. <laughs> a lot of people think of it as like a recruiting platform, but it's an actively growing social network to where you can go on there and find connections for any industry you're looking to get your foot in the door. That's so, super good. Um, Cause we, we really didn't touch on this, which I think is so important is it is important to work and it's important to have meaningful work, right? And if that Absolutely. part is lacking in your life, then the rest of it, even if you have great connection, can feel like it's not the complete pie. For sure, yeah. That was And that was the part, which Dan can also attest to, I'm sure, but that was the part that was really difficult for me after football was over. And I knew I wasn't going to the NFL, so I can only imagine for people who have played professionally or had high hopes of going to the next level. I knew I wasn't going to play at the next level, and I still struggled with the transition after football. And one of the hardest things was not knowing what I was going to do next because I went from knowing my place in the world to having this purpose to having no clue what I was going to do, no clue what I was interested in. So like you said, Sheila, it's having something that you can wake up every day and apply yourself to and keep improving upon is vitally important, not just for athletes, but for everyone. Really cool. And Dan, for you, um, Sober Living, super cool that you're doing. Is that a day job for you now? Yeah. Wow. Um, hold on. When Taj, can you tell them? I love it when you tell them about how you named it Thrive After Sports. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, when, when people would ask me how I was doing, you know, after I was playing football, like in the, in the like middle of my dark period when I was drinking and isolated and all that, People say, hey, Tosh, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm just trying to survive. I'm just trying to get by. And eventually, once I started to come out of that, I had this shift where I was like, I'm going to stop saying that because I'm keeping my place uh, in survival mode. I'm keeping my mind in this place where I'm just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. So I said, I'm going to go from surviving to thriving. And I actually named my uh, program and my podcast Thrive After Sports. It's a play on life after sports because I want all athletes that I'm working with or that I come across or anyone who – listen to the podcast to be able to thrive after sports in their life after sports. Oh, so. so cool. Yeah. Okay, Dan, for you, where are people going to find you? So you can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I, that's where Taj and I hooked up. Yeah. Um, friends of friends. Um, you can find me at cascadesoberliving.com. Um, hey, catch is underway at the moment. We do have Facebook and social media. So Hey, catch is, up and coming walter and i are doing that it's going to be super fun we're going to have the ability to have guys like taj and uh, one of his uh kind of peers that went to stony brook leo Her leo sullivan's going to help us bridget case so you can find me at heycatch.com but right now i'm working my day jobs cascade sober living um but i'm also I, i'm a certified alcohol and drug counselor certified recovery mentor um, I could throw you my phone number on here, but <laughs> you might not want to do if, that because yeah, this goes all over the needs world. Help, um, I'm not, you know, somebody will, if somebody needed something, they can reach me through any of those. Um, and we, we're like 24 7. That's um, so that's wonderful. That's what I'm doing. That's yeah. awesome. That's great. Dan Delaney and Taj Deshawn, thanks again for being with us, you guys. Really so proud of what you're doing. It's very, very cool. Thank, Thank you. Sheila. It was a pleasure. Yeah. And our program is brought to us by the Foundation for Excellence in Mental Health Care and Cedar Hills Hospital, where lots of people go to start their sober living journey. Make it a great day. Yeah.